and and we have picture after picture of like a basketball court on a, on a school campus and right behind it is the well pad Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Sustaining with Shana, a show where I will share all the amazing and exciting works of sustainability happening across the eastern foothills of the Appalachian Mountains to the lush farmlands of southeastern Pennsylvania. By celebrating our community, we can help to bridge the gap between local and international sustainability endeavors. Today's guest is Karen Faradin, a very close family friend of mine, and also the founder of Burke's Gas Truth, co-founder of the Better Path Coalition. And also on this episode, we really dive in deep on what hydraulic fracturing and fracking is, and how important it is to address issues like this, especially during an election year with the election only happening less than two months away. We also talk about the craziness that uh, fracking has caused in our community and why it's such a problem here in Pennsylvania. Before we meet Karen, let's hear an update about the podcast and some key information. Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Sustaining with Shana, and I'm so glad you're here, and thank you so much for listening. Especially a special shout-out, that sounds like a tongue twister, doesn't it, to my listeners who not only live in Pennsylvania and can also identify to a lot of the key issues that I talk about on this show, But more importantly, also the listeners that live across the country and in other parts of Pennsylvania to other parts of even the Northeast here. But most importantly, I also want to give a special shout out to the listeners who live outside of the U.S. and are tuning in from places like Ireland to France to the United Kingdom to Australia to even Asia and parts of Africa. Thank you so much for listening. And without your viewership, this wouldn't be possible. But I also wanted to update everybody on some things happening between now and the next few months. So between now and Election Day here in the U.S., it is November the 3rd. Pretty much all of us know what's at stake during this election. But because of that, I'm going to be focusing heavily on how climate change and politics and racism all play a role together, including the episode I have today, as well as others coming up soon. And I'm really excited to see this conversation of having an intersection between all of those issues together. But once after election day is over and as the leaves start to fall from the trees and as the 
it starts to get colder outside I'm going to be turning towards figuring out ways that I can also share my journey of living a more personal and sustainable life, but also trying to figure out how to help you in the process. And for those who follow my Instagram account might have a little inclination of what I mean by that. Last Wednesday, uh, September the 2nd, I did a fairly large post explaining all of that. So come this late November, early December, through most of the winter, we'll be focusing on how we can make sustainable lifestyle changes at home and even how we can eat more plant-based food to also how do we eat here locally at home and have our food sourced from sources that we know of personally and also have a relationship with the land. So in the meantime, please share this podcast with anybody you know out there who might be interested, even if they might not identify with a lot of the issues that are still pretty, excuse me, sorry, uh, are still pretty geographically centered and are focused on specific areas. At the same time, a lot of these issues, I think, transcend that and really dive into certain issues that somebody else might be facing in a completely different part of the world and still struggle with that. And I feel like this episode really helps to bring that home that even though we have issues here in Pennsylvania, these same kind of issues happen in other parts of the United States, but also in other parts of the world. So with all that being said, and I promise I'm almost done rambling, is make sure you like and follow Sustaining with Shana on Facebook and Instagram, and also check out the website. But last but not least, let's get to the real important stuff that you're here for, is the interview. Stay tuned, it's up next. Welcome back to another episode of Sustaining with Shana. Uh, as always, I say every episode that I'm excited to have today's guest on, but today's guest, uh, we go way back uh, doing anti-fracking protests when I was in high school to even today, uh, part of the larger movement to incite clean green energy here and also the health and safety of all Pennsylvanians. So without further ado, Karen, please tell the listeners more about yourself. Well, thanks for having me, Shana, and, and congratulations for doing this and for you know putting together your blog and everything. It's really amazing what you're doing. So I'm I'm proud of my niece. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Aunt Karen. <laughs> um, so uh, as Shana said, I'm Karen Ferret, and I've been in the anti-fracking movement now for almost exactly ten years. Um, it was June twenty first. 2010, I realized recently. Um, and so uh, prior to that, I was working on sludge 
with Dari Sicker at the United Sledge Free Alliance, and I was involved in the Mid-Atlantic Renewable Energy Association that's based here in Berks County. And so um, I found my way into all of that through actually the Obama campaign in 2008. Um, and so I actually first got to know you really through um, that and through uh, your interest in sludge when you were mm -hmm. doing your term paper on it. So, I mean, we really do go back. Yeah. Uh, and so, but my, my entree was really, you know, coming back to Kutztown, buying a house here, getting involved in the Obama campaign and then meeting all of these people with all of these interests. And, and at one point I heard about fracking and I didn't mm -hmm. know anything about it. And I heard there was going to be this documentary on, on HBO. So I watched it. And they aired it twice that night, and that's June 21st, 2010. That's why I know the date. Um, they aired it twice, and so between viewings, because I did watch both, I ran to the kitchen to see if I could set my tap water on fire. <laughs> 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 and when I couldn't, I thought, okay, but that means I really need to get involved in this issue because it's crazy that some people can. And, um, and so that's really how it happened. I was already starting to do things in the environmental realm and so forth, you know, before I... Um, uh, you know, got onto that specific issue of fracking, and Burke's Guest Truth came about because uh, I was talking to them in Atlantic Renewable Energy Association board because we used to put together something called the Energy Fest. Up in I miss Kansas. that. I do too. <laughs> <laughs> but we always would have a Friday night event, uh, you know, speaker or concert, something. And I said, I just saw this movie over the weekend, you know, Guestland, and it was great. And I think we should ask Josh Fox, and he's going to be in Bethlehem uh, in a, another few days. And I thought I'd go there and ask him to you know, speak and show his film. And when I got there, he agreed, and he did come and do the festival. But um, I found out that the hosting organization was something called Lehigh Valley Gas Truth. And mm. so I thought, oh, great, I, I get to join something. I've been trying to figure out how to get involved in this movement. Here it is. Mm -hmm. And from that, I decided to bring information back to Berks County and have a sister organization called Berks Guest Truth. And that's really how it started. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And out of that process, it was like, like me, my parents, and then a few other people were founding members in that process too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the very first meeting was actually two people. <laughs> and it was Chuck Brown, and it was uh, Bill Bispols, and yeah. Chuck Brown and Ezine, and he brought it back online because it was on hiatus, so I could have a place to write about fracking. And Bill suggested um, the T-shirt uh, that he came up with uh, with his kids. That he came up with the slogan "Don't frack your mother," mm -hmm. and that has been our slogan. And the design that was done by our friend Michelle Sales at Kutztown University, mm -hmm. um, who was a student at the time. Uh, and has been our logo ever since the beginning. And so they were really important people to have at that first meeting. Yeah, 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 for sure. So in addition to founding Burke's Gas Truth, I mean, what other organizations have you been involved with too? Because um, not just for the listeners to hear, but just even kind of that landscape post 2010 and then I went off to college and some other stuff. So it's, you've been so busy. It's kind of hard to keep track of it all. <laughs> well, you know, most of the things I do are related to fracking. So I, you know, have been involved in various coalitions that we formed over the years, like the national coalitions, uh, Americans against fracking and stop the frack attack. I served on the steering committees of both of those. Um, and then at the state level, uh, there have been many, most recently, it's uh, the Better Path Coalition that mm -hmm. uh, I co-founded with a bunch of other organizers from across the state. 
in April of 2018. Um, but, um, you know, other than that, outside of the uh, fracking community or anti-fracking community, I've been involved with, uh, like, you know, things at the local level. I'm on the planning commission. I used mm -hmm. to be on the borough's EAC. There are a lot of used to's on my list because <laughs> over time it became so overwhelming the amount of work that I just have to do with the anti-fracking movement that I you know had to leave some things behind but at one point I was on the solid waste authority for Brooks County you're going to see cats just popping in. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, the listeners can't see that. This would be Moo Moo. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I've done a whole bunch of different things locally. I told you about Middle Atlantic Renewable Energy mm -hmm. Association and um, United Sludge Free Alliance early on. Um, I forget some of them, but there, there have been a lot that I've mm -hmm. done things with over the years. But like I said, primarily... And for the last many years, it's all been about fracking all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember like in high school, getting off of school to go to protests and some <laughs> of which that you organized with other organizers across the state. And yeah, it was, it's, it's an interesting landscape to see how early on there was a lot of this energy and activism with it. And it's kind of, it seemed to change over time and it's interesting. And um, before going into my next question, this is one thing that I've been thinking a lot about um, and leading up to our conversation is I distinctly remember sitting in the old uh, Kutztown Dems club meeting space and we were talking about fracking and this whole idea of like, when are we going to address climate change? When is clean energy going to be here? And over the probably the last like three or four years, I always think back to that conversation that it just seems like even 10 years ago, nobody understood it. Nobody talked about it. Nobody cared. Mm -hmm. But how much it's become an in-your-face apparent problem that you can't look away anymore and you can't ignore it. And those five, 10 people that were in that space seem like the only people out there, but unfortunately because of it's getting so much worse that there's more people that would probably have joined that space if it's 10 years later. Yeah, I mean, I have a bad joke. I always tell, you know, I do talks about how I came for the water, I stayed for the climate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because um, when when I first got into the anti-fracking movement for the first couple of years, really, we were talking about water contamination and that was everybody's main concern. Mm -hmm. And then uh, it, was, you know, it was happening early on, but I remember, I think it was probably about 2012, um, when it really became evident thanks to the work of people like Tony and Graffia and Bob Howarth at Cornell University, um, who really made, you know, not popular, but popularized, like brought to the public's attention, um, the role that methane plays, um, not just in climate change, mm -hmm. but in water contamination and all the other problems that we encounter because just mm -hmm. how much it leaks along the production of natural gas. So, um, you know, when you talk about coal and oil, a lot of the problems happen during the consumption and natural gas contributes to that too. But what was misunderstood at the beginning was just what a role methane leakage plays in contributing to climate change and worsening climate change because it's, it's such a powerful greenhouse gas. And mm -hmm. so um, 
as that happened, as people started to understand that, and as the industry sort of shifted, the movement shifted, we became not just more uh, interested in making those connections to climate change and, and fracking, but also the amount of infrastructure build out that occurred at that very same time that, you know, we saw more and more pipelines crossing the state. So more and more communities were becoming part of it. Uh, and so it was sort of a dual thing happening at the same time that the movement was changing from being, you know, very concentrated on fracking and water impacts to being this very expansive thing that took into account, um, you know, climate impacts and community impacts in different ways because of the power plants and the LNG facilities and all mm -hmm. of the other things that, you know, are the attendant infrastructure of fracking. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it's, it's grown and changed and morphed in many, many different ways over the years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I feel like that's a perfect segue into today's topic. So with all of this in methane and the water issues, in the long and the short of it, what the hell is fracking <laughs> or, or hydraulic fracturing that it's also called as? Yeah, so um, hydraulic fracturing is a process that's been around for a few decades. I think it recently, well, not recently now, but a few years ago, it had its 60th birthday. And so it's used for lots of applications, you know, mm -hmm. but it was about 20 years ago when they uh, coupled hydraulic fracturing with mm -hmm. other technologies and gave birth to what we call unconventional drilling or, mm -hmm. you know, fracking as we shorthand the entire process. Fracking is technically, though, the shorthand for the, you know, the terms hydraulic fracturing. Mm -hmm. And that refers to uh, putting fluids into the earth at extreme pressures so that you can cause something to fracture, in this case, the shale, to release gas. Um, but it, it wouldn't have the impact that it has had if it had not been married with another technology, especially this one. There are a couple of others, but the big one was uh, horizontal directional drilling. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's also known to people for other applications. Like that's how they put pipelines underneath bodies of water. They use horizontal directional drilling for that. But in this case, they drill down about a mile or more, and then they turn the horizontal the, the drill bit horizontally to make a well bore that can go mm -hmm. up to. It used to be two miles. Now it's four. Oh my God! Uh, yeah, these are incredibly long wells. And so imagine how much fluid and how much pressure you have to use to be able to frack. And it's in stages, but to ultimately get to that farthest reach of the horizontal wellbore, it's a tremendous amount of water that goes into the process. Um, and so uh, those two uh, uh, technologies married, like I said, a couple of decades ago now. And then the next technology that's part of the mix that is critical because of what I just said about the amount of water that is used, when you put that much water into the process, into a relatively narrow well bore having at that pressure it's going to create so much of its own friction that it's going to slow down the process and mm. so what they automatically add to the to the water in this uh, technology or in this process is uh, uh, a lubricant and so they refer to the process as slick water and so you have hydraulic fracturing married with horizontal directional drilling married with the slick water the lubrication of the water and then the other technology that came about that was part of the mix that made unconventional drilling what it is, is the ability to put multiple wells on a well pad. And now, uh, if you can imagine having parallel lines of well bores extending 
from um, a central bank of wealth. Uh, that's how it works. So when something goes wrong with one, it can be a disaster because you know a fire at one well that can now spread so easily to all the ones neighboring it is a real calamity in the making. And so you know, so it's caused endless problems in any number of different ways because of all of those things coming together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It almost kind of looks like a spider effect probably underground in the sense of like there's one central point and then it's like all shooting off in different directions then. Well, the, the lines are always um, uh, parallel to one another. Mm -hmm. So it'll go off in two different directions, but still, you know, it's a lot of, of firepower potentially on one well pad if something goes wrong. Um, and they build these things next to schools, you know, and, 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 and you know, so it's not just that they're going to cause a problem at the well pad. They're causing problems that are going to affect communities surrounding them, schools that are nearby, hospitals, nursing homes daycare centers. I mean, it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. an insanity, really. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember there was at one point in time, uh, and I don't know if this is still the case, because I'm kind of, I'm not as educated with fracking as I used to be, but uh, they were building some of these well pads within, is it 100 feet or 100 yards of a school? Or it's like within a football field's length of a school. And imagine you're sitting in school <laughs> trying to do your work and you look out your classroom window and there's a giant, huge well pad. Yeah, I mean, actually there's no setback. <sighs> and, and so there, you know, are uh, recommendations that you should, you know, build them. You know, I mean, we actually had a campaign for a while uh, with one of the coalitions I was part of at the time, Protect Our Children. Um, uh, it was a one mile minimum setback. Um, but that's really not enough. I mean, there is no safe setback from something that's not safe in, you know, in the grand scheme of things. But um, the fact is that it's not even a mile. I mean, the fact is it's not even feet. You know, there's no, there's no distance that they can't, um, you know, other than like maybe like 50 feet or 500 feet or something, again, based on recommendations, based on uh, mm -hmm. how permits are written and things like that. But it's, there's no solid fixed setback that is uh, required of these companies that really creates some distance between a school and mm -hmm. a well. I mean, some people have these things right next to their properties. Some schools put them on their properties. Mm. They actually lease their school property, their school campuses to put well pads. So, I mean, it's, it's crazy how close these things are. And, and we have picture after picture of like a basketball court on a, on a school campus and right behind it is the well pad. So now you have not only, uh, you know, this proximity, but you have no building in between the kids and the well pad to protect them should something go wrong. We're talking about kids out playing sports right next to this or practicing band or, you know, whatever it is that they're doing outside where there's zero, you know, barrier between them and mm -hmm. the fracking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's insanity. Well, and that kind of leads me to my next question is, so why is fracking so bad here in Pennsylvania? Because it just seems that this new form of gas drilling has become so problematic here in Pennsylvania. Well, it's problematic everywhere it's done. And that was the value of the early film, you know, Gasland, that really took Josh Fox, the director around the country, you know, and everywhere he went, he was encountering the same problems. Mm -hmm. And so that helps to make the case. You know, once you start looking at the science that we now have lots of that we didn't have back then, um, you know, you can see that there are some of the same problems that are cropping up everywhere, like low birth weight, 
higher pregnancy. You know, a lot of the health impacts crop up everywhere you look. A lot of the water contamination issues crop up everywhere you look. And so the problem with Pennsylvania, one of the problems with Pennsylvania is that we are in the east. And so we are vulnerable to this development because we're so close to major metropolitan areas. So we're a really attractive target for the industry because it makes it that much easier to get the gas to market. Um, and so uh, there's that. There's issues with our geology uh, that make it, you know, make it different and make it more challenging in some ways. But, you know, again, our location makes it all worth it to the industry to figure out these problems because we are, you know, geographically where they love us being. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, so we're more than happy to exploit our resources to get gas to market and uh, and pretend to follow a set of rules that they're really bad at, at following. And that's because we also have a terrible government in Pennsylvania. And there was just a grand jury report that came out um, that said that our agencies have failed us, our government has failed us. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we do have these things that are unique to Pennsylvania that make it a challenge here. One of them, just to give a quick example, is that a lot of the waste is disposed because there's lots of wastewater that comes out of the back end of the process that can't be used as drinking water ever again. It needs to be disposed of. And so one way to dispose of it, and there aren't a ton of good ways to dispose of it. So one way they've developed that is not great is to inject it back into the earth, into deep wells. And there's no guarantee that it's going to stay there, you know, so it's all the same problems that we deal with, you know, across the board with, you know, how to manage waste. But um, one of the things that they've said forever about Pennsylvania is that we don't have the geology for those deep wells. And mm. so they were exporting to places like Ohio mm -hmm. and other places where they could have more of these deep wells. And then all of a sudden, a few years ago, I was at a thing at Penn State University and one of the speakers there was there to show us the new seismic map of Pennsylvania that they had developed because we were going to have all these injection wells. And we we're like, well, we were always told we could have like maybe six or eight. And now you're showing us like, you know, many <laughs> and, uh, and many potential sites, you know, and, um, and they just changed their mind. Our geology must have changed or something. So, you know, it's because we have very bad regulators who let the industry get away with whatever it wants to get away with. And so in a state that really doesn't have the geology for these wells, we're gonna see more and more of them. And, you know, that's a big problem. And so, you know, it's been the same story over and over again that, you know, that the challenges that this area of the world would create are sort of glossed over because there's no regulator holding these industries to, you know, the industry to account or these companies to account when they get something wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting you say that uh, because in general about this whole issue, I remember I was at a clean energy conference out in the Lehigh Valley and a woman from the governor's office last year came and spoke about the most recent climate action report that was issued out, I guess, earlier that year. So I guess January of 2019, let's say. And I guess these are ones that, they're not done every 10 years, but they're done every few years. It's, it's not, I think it's something like every five to seven years. So 
it will be a while till the next one comes out. And it was interesting how this woman was like, not just praising or announcing the information in the climate action report, but almost, it felt like as if she was gloating about it, which was interesting. And the most peculiar part about this whole presentation she gave is I asked the question at the end, and I referenced the 2018 IPCC report that says we have till 2030 to get this right, and we need to make drastic and bold changes. And I said to her, so we're, you're praising or you're touting your whole mission of doing 40%, I think it was pre-1990 emissions um, by 2050. And I, I looked at her and I said, that's not enough. That's just simply not enough. And I'm concerned not just for my own future, but the future of, of generations after me. And it was just really interesting, the response she gave in the sense that is as if she took it personally. And it's like, this is, I'm not making this personal here. I'm looking at this as a whole issue across the commonwealth and it was just really fascinating because one minute the governor and the administration says that they're for addressing climate change and looking forward to the future but then the next minute they have their hand in their pockets in the industry so it's it's a frustrating complicated situation we have here and i mean I feel like it's always been a complicated history with gas drilling. It has. I mean, and, and beyond that, you know, we, uh, you know, we have been an extractive state. You know, we've been a fossil fuel state for generations. Um, and in fact, you know, if you look up, and I didn't realize this until a guest on the show that I used to do on BCTV, I take a deep breath. Um, uh, one of the faith leaders we had on the show pointed out that if you look up when you're standing in the rotunda in Harrisburg, um, it's circled by lunettes, these hmm. you know, paintings that were done at the you know, late 19th century. And they're about the foundational industries in Pennsylvania. Hmm. And oil and gas is one of them. Coal is one of them. Mining is hmm. one of them. You know, and so we've been in this business forever. And it's very much how our identity operates, you know, and, and it's a shame that we can't think forward enough to say we could be the green technology leaders, you know, if we wanted to be, we could come up, you know, we'd still be an energy state, but we'd be a clean energy state. It's a shame that the industry is, is so um, captured our government that, that that conversation isn't even really possible. And so what you end up with are disingenuous conversations with most people. I have to say we have some champions in Harrisburg now for the first time since I've been doing this and thank God for that. But it's, there's still a, just a, a few people there who are very few, but they have made changes just by their presence. Um, but mm -hmm. for the most part, you know, there's a, a Republican control of the legislature. And to the point that we have people um, from that party, like Daryl Metcalf from Butler County, Pennsylvania, who's a climate denier, and he's the head of the Environmental Resources and Energy Committee. And so he brings climate deniers into his meetings to testify. In fact, they just did one on Reggie, and none of the people testifying were actually for Reggie. They were all mm. people against Reggie. And so we have a huge problem with that in Pennsylvania, but that's not to give Democrats a break. 
because mm-hmm. there's this other thing happening and it doesn't just happen at the state level. I, I point to this at the federal level a lot and in other states, uh, but I call it climate denial Democrat style. That's my hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And so what happens on the Democratic side is that you hear people you know, showing off climate reports and talking about how we're going to meet these targets and blah, blah, blah. And they don't really mean it. And it's really mostly lip service. And, um, and everything that they do in, you know, with their actions do not match their words. And so uh, not only are they not helping, but they're actually making things worse. And we've seen that time and time and time again with the Wolf administration. Um, and so it was in... I guess it's the same report you're talking about in January of last year when he held up this climate report and, um, and he did it with the Environmental Defense Fund, the fakest green organization on the planet. And you can, <laughs> you can, you can quote me on that. <laughs> I mean, they have done so much damage to our state by being supportive of this industry and they do this nationally. So they're a terrible organization, but they're always the ones that are, you know, side by side with the governor because they're going to deliver the right message in the right way for our administration. And so they have this event in Pittsburgh where they're talking about air quality and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and there's Wolf and he's holding up his climate report and now he gets to be the big climate champion. But while he was in Pittsburgh to do that event with EDF, he actually did an interview the same day, I think the same morning on, I think it was KDKA radio where um, he talked about how, if we're gonna have a strong natural gas industry, we need pipelines. So that's the very day that he's talking about being a climate leader. And so I look at the climate report and I don't know if you've paid attention to the actual climate report itself, but it's a joke of a report because if you look in there, um, it talks all about various things about climate, some of which are legit, but there are these sections where like these, you know, uh, sidebars that are like what you can do and then it's for you the individual and what you can do if you're a business and so one of the business what you can do is join the center for sustainable shale development which is a public-private partnership that we have derided over the years because it was this totally disingenuous very cynical way of getting industry to meet with big green organizations and get funded as a result so that 501c3 money that is so scarce that we all have to compete over, and I don't even get to compete because I'm not even a 501, but the big groups that we work with you know, are competing for funders' dollars. And here are industries, companies, you know, grilling companies that are fabulously wealthy, partnering with big greens so they can get funding, uh-huh. Uh-huh. nonprofit funding, to come up with a set of voluntary regulations so that they don't actually have to follow the real ones. And there were actually big green organizations that were willing to go along with it and funders that were willing to participate until we started pushing back. And Heinz was one that pulled out once they realized what they were actually funding. But it still exists. And that's one of the recommendations in the state's report. Join that thing, business. If you want to help you know, deal with climate change, join this industry group that's basically a front group and parading and masquerading as a, a nonprofit effort. It's a uh-huh. joke. Uh-huh. That's in our climate report. And then for you and I, um, seriously, these are two recommendations. Check your tire pressure and use um, energy efficient bulbs. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I mean, we're at the precipice and we're being told to check our tire pressure. Yeah, yeah. As I, I will say, I am so 
exhausted and so angry with the disingenuous acts that the industry portrays. And it's not just here in Pennsylvania or it's not here with our state government, but it's just, it's even like on a national scale, there was, I think it was a BP commercial that came out recently that they were trying to say how great they are. And then they're trying to suggest things about how you can reduce your carbon footprint. It's just some load, crap load of bullshit, to be honest. And the other thing that along with that is just like, I'm just so sick of the, the deliberate greenwashing. It's just, uh, and the way in which our commonwealth functions that it's like that's okay or that's almost to be expected it seems like or so normalized and then you think back to other issues not necessarily fracking related but the whole issue in the 80s and I forget, I think it was it started in the 80s, but the whole thing with Centralia and how that was a coal mine and it was lit by accident and now people can't live there for various reasons. And it's just, mm-hmm. after a certain point, it's like, it's just, I don't know. <laughs> when are we gonna get sick of this? Well, you know, one of the reasons I got into all of this work, um, and it was this op-ed that I wrote for the Kutztown Patriot, actually. Uh, I dubbed myself in Viral Girl. <laughs> and it's because I, I watched Gasland. I was already involved in Sledge. And then I went to some hearings over a local quarry issue. And mm-hmm. I remember the judge, when he was telling the public, the people who were the landowners there, the people from the community, that um, he wasn't going to find in their favor. And he said, one day, I'll think, I think you'll see that justice was served. And I was thinking, well, who's serving the environment? You know, there's nobody serving the environment. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's, that, it's that same sort of thing where everywhere I look, you know, I'm seeing people start talking around the issues or finding their own justification for things. It's totally disingenuous or it's self-serving. You know, mm-hmm. justice is serving itself. It's not serving the environment that it was created to protect along with the rest of us, you know, with mm-hmm. all of us. Um, and so... Yeah, it was just, I just, I I thought, you know, I've seen this documentary too many times, you know, how many times am I going to have to watch this documentary because Gasland is effectively the same as Sludge Diet, which is the movie we used to show over and over and over. They Mm -hmm. had, you know, the same arc. It had people getting sick, animals getting sick and dying, uh, you know, um, uh, female scientists uh, who were the ones who were talking about it and the ones exposing it, whistleblowers Mm -hmm. from the EPA. It's the same movie. And, and you can watch a million movies like that. And then you can go out to a hearing and hear a judge talking about how the public really doesn't have any rights. And it's just like you start hearing the same messages over and over and over. And you wonder how many times are we going to keep repeating this and mm-hmm. going down the same path and getting it wrong. Um, and so um, yeah, that was a big motivation for me getting involved. But, you know, what I've seen in the years since, I mean, it's it's that saying about how you know, you don't want to see laws and sausages made, you know, those are the two things. And boy, you know, is that right? I mean, the more I know about the political process and the more I know about how things actually work in Harrisburg, you know, Mm -hmm. specifically, uh, it's really disturbing to see um, just how, uh, how much the industry has infiltrated our political process. I mean, it's not just the money. You can point to the 60 million plus dollars that's been pumped into our political process in Pennsylvania and even Governor Wolf used that as one of his campaign ads. And he said, if you think that 
Harrisburg is owned by the industry, it's because it is, or something, I'm paraphrasing, but he actually called it out as he's taking money from the industry and as he's doing their bidding. And so, <laughs> and it's, his argument is that we need um, a severance tax and that that's why they're fueling um, these uh, legislators that, you know, they, with all their campaign contributions that they're trying to get them to oppose the severance tax, but that's not why they're doing it. They're doing it to have influence over all of them and Wolf included and everybody, you know, in the legislature included and a lot of regulators who go through the revolving door, they don't get donations because they're not elected, but, um, but you know, they have a job waiting for them when they leave the, the DEP or the Department of Health, you know. I mean, these people are, are very influenced by what industry is telling them and and it hurts us, you know, because it just leads to bad decision after bad decision and, and disingenuous um, messaging to the public. And so we're not really getting the information that we need. So for instance, one of the big shifts in these last few years, and I mentioned already that, you know, we understand the climate impacts of fracking, we understand all the infrastructure build out and that's bringing it to communities who never paid attention before. But the big shift uh, in even more recent years is the shift from fracking for methane to fracking for ethane. And it's mm. a shift from natural gas production to petrochemical production. Mm. Um, and so um, it's one way that they can talk a good game on climate and still have all the fracking we've ever had because they're not fracking for fuel, they're fracking for plastics. And so they can talk about energy and fuels and fossil fuels and getting off of them and transitioning because they already have a market for fracking. They already have something for fruckers to do, which is go after the ethane, get that out so they can make these little pieces called nurdles <laughs> that are the you know, foundational plastics that they'll ultimately use to make um, you know, single-use plastics, all those water bottles, all those things, the plastic bags that communities are trying to ban, all those things that we're trying to stop using to stop putting into the ocean, to stop killing aquatic life with, are the things that this state is starting to just really invest in. And so they're providing them with subsidies. And there was recently a very bad bill that passed. And here, here's a perfect example of how our government works against us. Uh, the Republican Party introduced a suite of bills called Energize PA. And it was supposed to almost be a counter to Wolf's Restore Pennsylvania, which was an infrastructure plan that would give us the severance tax he's been wanting forever. And so they countered with this thing called Energize PA, which was a suite of bills. The first one of them was HB 1100. And that bill would create all these subsidies so that more companies could come into the state and build cracker plants. And those are the plants that crack open those ethane molecules that they frack from the earth and um, extract the ethylene from within so that they can create those nurdles that are those, you know, like raw materials that they use to make plastics. And so that happens in what's called a cracker plant. So um, HB 1100 was going to provide subsidies so that the state could, you know, finance many more of them than is already happening where we have one that's in uh, Beaver County that's being built by Royal Dutch Shell. That company was given $1.65 billion in tax breaks and other subsidies to be able to build their cracker plant in Beaver County. Now they want to do that over and over and over via this one bill. And Wolf says he's going to veto it, um, but it has strong democratic support, including our local legislators. And, um, and so, in both parties. 
and uh, and so uh, so uh, HB eleven hundred is ultimately defeated by uh, Wolf's veto. But it was a fake veto. It wasn't really a veto of the bill based on the merits of the bill. Like no, we don't want to give these kinds of subsidies away. He did indicate that at one point he thought that they should be taken on a case by case basis, not just have this law in place to automatically give these subsidies. But that was a lie, because what he really wanted to do was get some language added into the bill about. Um, you know, uh, wage protection and that sort of thing for the workers. It's always about the workers, uh, even though there aren't that real many jobs really. But um, so, so he had a backroom deal um, with the Republicans and they took a bill, HB 732, that had nothing to do with fracking at all, nothing to do with petrochemicals, had to do with giving some sort of uh, real estate tax exemption to emergency responders. And they shift, sh they shoved rather into that bill um, a uh, an amendment that was basically HB 1100, mm. watered down in some ways, but it was basically a big subsidy bill that they turned into an amendment, put it into a bill that was about to pass, so that it didn't have to go through a legislative review. It had already been through its legislative review, so that part about petrochemicals just went under the radar entirely, and that's how they got the bill passed. And that just happened. And that happened with, again, very strong Democratic support. And so most of the legislators in the state and the governor supported seeing that bill go through. That is basically our doom, our demise, because it now sets up decades more of fracking because companies can come into the state and get subsidies to build fracker plants, which means they can keep fracking for plastics forever. And that's their intention. And of course, the fracking matter that you're going for ethane well ethane's a greenhouse gas by the way but you know the same problems occur that occur um you know in fracking for methane and in fact you don't just go and get ethane you get methane along for the ride mm -hmm. and so you're still contributing to climate change by allowing methane to leak it's still you know keeping the natural gas business in business to do this and that's what they had just given the green light to enthusiastically mm -hmm. Yeah, so to clarify with all that, because um, it's still a lot to digest and especially how the, the industry has shifted over these last few years, but largely they're not fracking anymore for just the conventional ways in which to use it as just like liquefied natural gas is now they're also turning towards fracking for the ethane to use to for products made out of petrochemicals so like single-use plastic and stuff like that so correct me if i'm wrong in understanding that but that's also what's the whole new can of worms in all of this yeah in fact um and you mentioned lng and i'll i'll get to that in a second um but uh, what it has meant is that they drill a lot deeper in places and one of the reasons why there hasn't been as much activity in um, petrochemicals in the northeastern part of the state where you know is it's sort of there are two centers of the state mm -hmm. where there are tons of fracking in the northeast and the southwestern corner and mm -hmm. so the northeast has been very slow because the the gas is too dry um, where they can drill deeper into the Utica shale and get out the ethane uh, mm -hmm. is in the southwestern part of the state and so um, we've seen all sorts of particular challenges you know dealing with um, you know the 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 fact that that 
part of the state has been hammered twice now. I mean, they have already been through it and they were through coal before that, you know. So you keep hitting the same communities over and over and over again. That poses, you know, some new challenges to that part of the state. But in the Northeast, they feel left out. And so, um, and so they part of actually HB 732 was pushed very much by uh, Republican legislators from that northeastern part of the state, because it also pertains to uh, subsidies for um, agricultural chemicals and things like that and fertilizers. And so they can build fertilizer plants like the ones that just exploded, I guess, in Lebanon, you know, so I mean, yeah. so uh, so anyhow, so they're 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 trying to come up with all of these ways of bringing that petrochemical business somehow in some form, or at least that ethane business in some form to the northeast. But because it's not really where you can go fracking for this stuff, um, what they're also looking to do is uh, push LNG, and that's liquefied natural gas. So traditionally, ever since fracking began. Um, and all these years we've been talking about it. We've mostly been talking about fracking for natural gas, and that means methane. And that means it's a gas in a gaseous form that is put into pipelines to move from point A to point B, where it's processed in different ways and so forth. But what, um, what has happened with the petrochemical boom is that they've gone after what are considered to be natural gas liquids. Methane's one of them, propane, butane. And so they're handled differently. And that's how they pose some very specific challenges, like they're heavier gases that can sit closer to the earth longer if they leak out. And so all they need to do is meet up with an ignition source and suddenly you have a massive explosion on your hand. Um, and so uh, well, that's one of the challenges for people even in our part of the state because of the pipeline that moves those natural gas liquids. Uh, the one that's already in the ground is the Mariner East pipeline, mm -hmm. but they're proposing more. Uh, so um, that pipeline would move that gas or is moving that gas to Marcus Hook where it's put on what are called dragon ships and they're exporting it right now to Scotland and Norway because they already have cracker plants. The one in Pennsylvania isn't done. People are still fighting to stop it in fact. But Mariner East is an operating pipeline that's moving that very volatile gas. So now you have a whole new level of problem, concern, you know, with um, the volatility of the natural gas liquids. So what they want to do in Northeastern PA to get back into the methane business to find their way back in um, is to take this, the methane gas, liquefy it. So now it is a natural gas liquid mm -hmm. in a, to a sense and put those on, you know, that gas onto ships and export it. And so there's a big push right now, a big project that's being proposed for Northeastern PA that would have a, a port in New Jersey exporting this gas around the clock, 24 seven, um, where they would be just taking gas off of trucks and trains that would move the gas from Wyalusing, Pennsylvania and Bradford County through you know, this part of the state, down the turnpike, through our communities on trains, um, and ultimately deliver it to Gibbstown, which is across the river from Chester, Pennsylvania. It's surrounded by environmental justice communities. It's mm -hmm. one point down from the Philadelphia International Airport across the river. Um, that's where they want to have this continuous operation, putting this volatile stuff onto ships um, and then shipping it again to places like Ireland and Puerto Rico uh, so that they're not even leaving the gas here. It's not for public consumption here. It's not in any way beneficial to the people here who have gas service. It's leaving the area, it's leaving the country in some cases um, to, to go to these other places where they're creating a new market for themselves 
um, you know, in the export market. And that's a terribly dangerous thing to do, not just because of climate, but because of just how volatile these gases are when they're liquid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just want to make a note with that and um, just reiterate one of your points is this whole idea for decades that we were sold lies. So your generation and my generation were sold these lies that, oh, if we frack here at home and if we drill, uh, if we drill for oil here at home, if we dig for coal here at home, then we're energy independent. But that, that means nothing because in the long run, when we're fracking here for both methane and, and ethane uh, to use for different reasons, most of it gets shipped out of the Commonwealth and the country and is not even used here. And to add to all of that, and some of the points that you've made is the Pennsylvanian taxpayers, the taxpayers of Pennsylvania are the ones who are paying for the destruction of our own environment. And the fact is, I don't really care about the the products that are the result of this fracking, but it seems also really disingenuous the fact that you not only force Pennsylvanians to pay and clean up for the mess, but the stuff that you dig up from the ground, you don't even sell to Pennsylvanians. You sell it to the highest bidder on the market. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's similar in a way to the fight that people are more familiar with, in some cases, Keystone XL. You know, mm-hmm. one of the big arguments made about Keystone XL was that you're, you're basically bisecting the United States and all of those communities between Alberta, Canada and, you know, the Gulf where it would be shipped out all of those communities are not benefiting in any way from what's moving through them and causing all the damage and hurting the aquifers and you know running through uh, you know uh, reservations of native americans and you know and i mean it's just it's crazy and so we're seeing that played out time and time again here in pennsylvania where like you said the taxpayers are the ones who are bearing the brunt of all of this we're subsidizing it with our taxpayer dollars and then we're going to be the ones paying for the cleanup and that's going to be a long-term cleanup. It's going to be a cleanup that needs to occur in perpetuity in some ways, because one of the huge issues that I always like to bring up if I have the chance, um, because it should be the deal breaker for all of this, forget the health. I mean, forget all the damage that was done to our, our environment already. Those are compelling reasons. They should be. But the thing that really should absolutely be the deal breaker is that every one of these wells is going to deteriorate and they need to be maintained every 25 years. And right now, we have so many of them in the ground from generations past. I mean, farmers used to just drill wells in their backyards, you know, and they're not located yet. They're on the ones that we know about, and they're always finding more, but the ones that we know about are, if they're anywhere, are on old uh, oil and gas maps. And so sometimes, you know, people I know will be over at DEP doing a file review looking for something about whatever fight they're fighting and they'll come across another oil and gas map. And they look mm-hmm. like, you know, they look like mimeographs that are all speckled with line noise, but all the line noise is actually oil and gas wells. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's just so many of them that, you know, this, what 
is actually a very clean map is showing so much noise because there are that many little symbols needed to indicate all of the wells and they have not been located in real time in real life right now you know in the 21st century uh, these are date back in some cases um, and so what <laughs> i mean it's almost too absurd to really even Say, but what we've done sometimes every once in a while we will calculate based on the number of wells that are capped by the Department of Environmental Protection every year um, and they're so slow to do it that what we have calculated will vary anywhere between something like it'll take us 40 odd thousand years or 22,000 years was the more recent number to cap every well once yeah and because at the rate that they're going that's what it would take and we need to have them all capped every 25 years. And so we're not even close to being on top of this problem. And it's a phenomenally expensive problem. They're, they're not even located on the ground. Our friend, Laurie Barr, um, who's uh, in um, Potter County, she's made it her mission to go around the state with her husband and her friends. And they, they actually have something called Save Our Streams PA. But if you go to the website, she's a photographer. And so she takes pictures of these wells that she finds, these abandoned wells or orphaned wells, and mm -hmm. she takes a picture of them. And then she used to use a lighter, but now she has a methane detector. And she, you know, indicates the, you know, she records that they're all leaking. They're always leaking. Mm -hmm. And um, and then she plots them on GPS so that they can be located. Mm -hmm. She's doing that as her avocation in her retirement. Wow. Because nobody else is doing it. Mostly the DEP is not doing it, and they're not funded to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and why would they be funded to do that? Because then that's counterproductive to the industry. And why isn't the industry being forced to pay for that? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if you look at Act 13, which was the rewriting of the Big Oil and Gas Act for Pennsylvania that occurred a few years ago, and a lot of it was actually tossed out by the Supreme Court for being unconstitutional. So it was a really bad law in many ways, but one of the sections uh, in there set up these well bonding fees. Uh, which are, you know, like those upfront dollars that drillers need to pay um, as they're getting their permits and things like that. And there are, you know, like bulk discounts, you know, where they can pay one giant fee to get a whole lot of permits. And, uh, but, um, but basically it sort of boils down to about $10,000 per well. And um, to cap a well, there was a study done by Carnegie Mellon a few years ago now um, that looked at what it took to, um, uh, to to take uh, to to uh, basically decommission, I guess, the wells in Dimmick, where they had done so much damage, uh, cabin oil and gas had contaminated the water supplies of many families on a road called Carter Road, and ultimately they needed to take three of their wells offline. Each one of those cost more than seven hundred thousand dollars to take offline. Now, that's extreme because it was problems wells and the problem wells that they you know needed to do extra work with but on average Carnegie Mellon found it was more on the order of like a hundred thousand dollars for a well well that's not ten thousand dollars that's more than ten thousand of course <laughs> and so when we only have that much money that we've hung on to you know even if we get interest on it or something you know it's not enough it's just not close to being enough and that's one time that's uh -huh. one that's uh -huh. one capping Mm -hmm. That's the one where you're taking it offline. It's probably the more expensive one, but still, it's once. Mm -hmm. You got to mm -hmm. do it every 25 years. And if it's starting to leak, you got to take some extreme measures. You got to do the job and it's not happening. So if we need to be serious about methane as we need to be, 
you know, as climate is going to just keep getting worse and worse and worse, as long as we allow that very potent greenhouse gas to leak into the atmosphere, then it's going to have to become much more of a front and center kind of effort. And that's going to be on the backs of every taxpayer in the state. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <sighs> it's, and it's just, it, it just continues going on and on and on and on. And I feel like we could talk hours and hours about some of this and I can't imagine at this point in the episode, some of the listeners of the podcast that may have never heard about fracking or you hardly know anything. And it's just like, I could just picture them trying to wrap their head around this whole issue because it's, it's just, it's so expansive. It's so, yeah. There's so and much it, to it. There's so much to it. Um, so before kind of wrapping up with a quick few little lighthearted questions. I do want to ask this one question, especially considering the fact that we are less than 60 days till election day, that what with fracking and then also how fracking is uh, contributed to climate change and uh, note for the listeners, two episodes back. So on episode 10, I talked with Dr. Davis about the complexities of climate change and how fracking plays a role in that. So that being said, what is at stake with this election when it comes to fracking and climate change in your opinion? Well, I think that we're in a real tough situation here in Pennsylvania because we're clearly a very important swing state. We are critical in the last election and, um, there's every effort being made to make sure that um, that unions, frankly, don't pull their support of Democratic candidates in the upcoming election. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the big contributors to that bill passing, HB 732. Unions were pressuring uh, because they want the jobs. Mm -hmm. And it's understandable. Everybody wants work, every, especially now in a pandemic. I mean, look at what's happening to our economy. So. The, you know, the need for jobs is is even more profound than it had been. And so, um, and so, you know, there's been an, an awful lot of pressure, not just put on by the industry, but by unions on legislators and on elected officials, non-candidates to, uh, to not go up against the industry, to not, not even talk about a ban on fracking, like Bernie was talking about and AOC was talking about. There's a bill in Washington now to ban fracking. Bernie was running on it. Um, and so, you know, so, people in the state have backtracked a lot. <clears throat> and so I'm going to, um, I mean, I think it's a, a mischaracterization of where we are politically in the state. I think we're actually more uh, able to talk about fracking in a way uh, than we thought we were um, even a few years ago and to talk about the need for a ban on fracking. Um, we've seen it with a couple of candidates like Summer Lee and uh, Danielle Freelotten who had massive amounts of money thrown at uh, competitors who didn't win. Uh, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. uh, they were both incumbents who sailed their way through their primaries, you know. So I think there are, um, uh, I think there's more of an appetite for the discussion than our political leaders and our political parties are willing to accept, uh, mm -hmm. especially because of the pressure that they're under. And so um, I think you know, it would be good to be mindful of that and to pay attention to some of the new polls and things that are coming out that indicate that. But um, ultimately, what everybody needs to to pledge to do 
is to however you vote, however you decide to go into the selection, whatever you decide to do, if you care about climate, if you care about future generations living on this planet, then you cannot go back to sleep if Joe Biden wins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. Uh, you know, we saw it with Wolf. I, I complain about this all the time. The people told me over and over and over again, just let's get Wolf elected. We don't want Scott Wagner. And as soon as he's elected, we will jump right in there and, and fight the fight. And not one of them did. Not one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be this big um, uh, tendency, this big you know, desire to, uh, to take a breath you know, if Joe Biden wins, um, because it's been so intense for such a long time now, and completely understandable that people need a break. We all do, but Joe Biden is no champion uh, of the planet. He is bad on fracking. He has been all along. The Obama administration, even though I worked for them early on, I volunteered. I, I'm sad that I did in some respects because they had an all of the above energy policy. They pushed fracking in other countries, you know, so Biden's part of that. And so he's going to need to be pushed and mm -hmm. we need people to push him. So mm -hmm. uh, in the end, however you decide to vote, however you think about it, how much stock you want to give to what I just said about there being more of an appetite for the discussion, even if you think that's nonsense, after the election, everybody needs to be serious. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree with that 110%. Yeah. And I just remember... It was the week before COVID hit our doorstep here in southeastern Pennsylvania. I spoke to a local Altrusa group and I said to this group of older women and so close to retirement or uh, in that next phase of life post-retirement, I said, please, I, however you vote, wherever you vote, when you go to vote, and this is before the primary, when you go to vote this year, please not only think about the climate, but think about not just your children's future, your grandchildren, but also the great-grandchildren that comes after that. Because mm -hmm. the world in which I will live in when you turn 65 or the age you're at now is going to be completely different than what it looks right now in 2020. And would you want to go to your grave with that thought that you could have done something and you didn't? Yeah. It's good that you say that. I mean, <laughs> it's tough love. <laughs> yeah, but it needs to be said. It does need to be said over and over and over again because this really, I just heard um, Russell Honore on uh, an interview that he did on MSNBC with Michael Mann. Uh, they were on uh, Katie Tourist show. But um, he was talking about how uh, in the Gulf, where they're suffering so badly from this industry, but also from all the effects of climate change that have been pummeling the Gulf Coast for, you know, decades, well, several storms now. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, Katrina on, you know, and they, even before that. Uh, but anyhow, he was talking about how when he talks to the people down there, he can't mention the words climate change. Mm. But they say it's a hoax, a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese. Oh and what he, but he, what he can talk about is um, pollution. Mm. And they hate it. And they get it. And so it's funny how, uh, you know, how even people who are already experiencing the direct impacts, and I would say, look around you even here in Pennsylvania, it's not as dramatic, but look at what we've seen in the way of flooding and some mm. of the storms that we've had um, and how, you know, 
we're being trounced, you know, by storms every summer now in a way that we really weren't. Just last night, there was another tornado watch. Mm-hmm. Growing up, I don't remember a single tornado watch my whole life when I was growing up. And I'm mm-hmm. about to be 64. Mm-hmm. And so I can remember lots of years <laughs> growing up when we mm-hmm. never had a single one. And in mm-hmm. the past, you know, 20 years, you know, they started creeping up. Now we've had several in one summer. That's a change. It's what's happening. It's happening all around us. We have to be mindful of that. We have to be paying attention. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, so people need to, to realize that they do have a, a stake in it and they do have a way, you know, to be helpful mm-hmm. and they have to figure out what that way is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's definitely not just use your voice to push a button or write, check a box or fill in a box, but it's actually holding a sign or calling your legislator, it's more than just filling in that little bubble because that takes five seconds, 20 seconds, or a minute to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to kind of wrap up the last few minutes that we have left, uh, I thought about asking not as deep um, and emotionally kind of provoking questions, <laughs> but uh, a little more lighthearted. So if you could quick sum up, what would be your definition of sustainability? Well, actually, based on uh, you know, what I just said, it kind of follows from that. I, I sort of don't have a definition of sustainability, mm-hmm. or else I would say maybe it's a paradox. It means mm-hmm. nothing, and it means everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's in part because I really think that um, the more prescriptive we are by going around and defining things for other people, the less likely they are to either want to get involved or figure out that there is a place for them. And so, I mean, I know you've heard me say this in front of audiences about mm-hmm. climate change, but it's the same thing. Climate action requires that we all figure out our way in. And once we're in, I think then we find other ways that we can contribute. And mm-hmm. we're all going to need to be that. But if there's a, such a thing as the sustainability club, it needs to be all of us not mm-hmm. a few of us who are telling the rest of us what it means. We all need to be in it together. And I mean, look at what we're doing with the pandemic right now, the mask wearing. We need people to be on board with masks. We need to be able to get uh, you know, the population pretty much on the same footing if we're gonna address this pandemic. And it's the same thing with sustainability, except the mm-hmm. benefit there is that it's not one thing. It's not wearing a mask. It's uh, you know, many different ways you can contribute. So find your way in, but you need to find your way in because we need to all do this together or it's not going to get done. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. So with you saying all of that, if you could sum it up into one word, <laughs> what would it be? Actually, it would be a different word. It would be Shana. <laughs> when I think of sustainability, I actually think of you because of what you're doing and because of what you're you know, what the conversation you're starting. I mean, you found your way. And so you are at the embodiment of what I just said, you know, that there are so many different ways to contribute, so many ways to approach it. You're doing it. So I think Shana, <laughs> that's the word I think. Thank you. I feel so honored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I will say um, a quick side note to that. I've really been trying to push that conversation uh, really hard these last few months and it's, it helps to have the podcast now but I was saying to somebody who uh, might be a guest on in a few weeks is I was always so frustrated in the 800 jobs that I applied to where it was like trying to be like a sustainability coordinator let's say for a college where 
all they cared about was metrics and all they cared about bottom line. <laughs> but how are people, how are you going to change and how are you going to save money and save the environment if you can't change the way people approach the issue or can't figure out ways to engage people better? And as part of that, this is like why the podcast really was started is just because I was so sick of seeing how we weren't trying to figure out ways to build conversations with people. So eventually the hope is to build both sides of the table is to have other people that wouldn't likely talk to each other about this. Because Mm -hmm. like you said, if all of us aren't a part of this, it's like all for nothing. Basically it's like, if all of us aren't involved, nothing's going to happen. That's right. Yeah. It's just that simple and it might not be the same way that we contribute with, you know, is the point that, you know, if you're a farmer and can find more sustainable ways of doing, you know, agriculture and growing crops and keeping your, you know, sustaining your farm, then that's great, you know, but somebody else who lives in a little town like me and wants to get involved in local government and make sure that we have walkable communities and things where we're not driving our cars constantly. And, you know, I mean, there's just so much to it. It it really is everything. It's Mm -hmm. like, I always, you know, I always cite uh, Naomi Klein's title, you know, this changes everything. In, in, you know, for uh, us to address climate change and sustainability is how we're going to get there is, uh, you know, a system change. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. need to change the way we think about everything. Mm-hmm. My last question I will ask with this is if you, if you could wake up tomorrow and was offered the most amazing ideal dream job doing sustainability or fracking or environmental advocacy work what would it be it would be the one i'm doing now but for pay (laughs) (laughs) that was gonna be the answer (laughs) yeah instead of me paying to do it i would actually get money to do it yeah yeah i mean that's the thing i think you know that's my contribution that's you know i've seen a lot of the bigger organizations go off and develop, you know, off fossil fuels are ready for $100, all these great things that they're doing. But a lot of them are very focused on the transition to clean, renewable energy. I feel like there needs to still be a lot of attention devoted to stopping production. Mm-hmm. You know, because, you know, consumption is uh, obviously where we need to be focusing a lot of attention. So it's all good work. But, you know, until we address production in Pennsylvania, the second biggest gas producer in the country, mm-hmm. we're not really going to be taking it that seriously here in the state. And, you know, so we need to really come to grips with what we have done and we need to find ways out of that business that we've created for ourselves here mm-hmm. that, you know, we are so reliant on in the state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and the whole transition and bridge fuel nonsense, that's a whole conversation in itself. <laughs> A whole, whole nother conversation in itself. Um, But yeah, it's just, I think that was a great way to drive it home in the end to just, yeah, we need to focus on the here and now and change with the situation in in which we have, for sure. And, you know, we have enough people. That's the thing. That's what, what getting everybody involved means, that all those big organizations can go and do all that work. And there, there's still people left over like me and all the people I work with who are going to focus it on the fracking. That's the way it has to go. We can't all be wearing all hats. 
It's just mm -hmm. not possible. So, you know, let's all figure out, you know, division of labor works. Let's do it. <laughs> let's just mm -hmm. make sure we're all doing it inclusively and not being the club that, you know, we're too exclusive to let other people into because we get it and they don't or something like that. We're turning people off with that. You know, my mask protects you, your mask protects me as a turnoff to people who don't want to tell, have somebody telling them mm -hmm. what virtue is. You know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so let's try to always be inclusive and let's just hear what other people think uh, sustainability is and how they can contribute and let's not define it for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely no other better way that I would end that. So thanks so much, Karen, for coming on the podcast and sharing all your knowledge about fracking, especially the fact that we're less than two months away from the election and how that's a critically important issue that ties into what will happen on November the 4th <laughs> for better, for worse and continuing generations. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. And I, I hope I get to visit again sometime in the future. <laughs> Absolutely. You're welcome on any time. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Shana. Yeah, and, you're welcome. And congratulations. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>